welcome to Teaching Channel Talks. I'm your host, Wendy Amato, and as often as I can, I jump into conversations about topics that matter in education. In this episode, I've brought you a licensed and nationally certified speech language pathologist. It's my pleasure to welcome Lisa Geary. Lisa, welcome. Hi, welcome. What are the first things we should know about speech language pathology? Tell us something right out of the gate. Sure. Well, I think the biggest thing I can tell you is that speech language pathologists, whether they're school-based or whether they're community-based, we are here to partner with educators and to really support uh, education and student performance. And so that's the biggest thing I think I could say. Well, every educator wants to hear that there's support and a network and a community. We could all team up to take care of students. How does a teacher work with a speech language pathologist? What's that relationship like? Oh, I think it can be really a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, as I mentioned, you know, school-based speech language pathologists are working um, to support educators and to support the students in the classrooms. Um, many schools have school-based uh, speech language pathologists right on site. Um, not every school has their own dedicated SLP. You know, there is a, a national shortage of uh, SLPs just like teachers. So um, the ideal would be to have uh, SLP for every school, but there, you know, there's going to be someone assigned to every school. And that SLP is somebody that is going to support the needs of students who uh, demonstrate some sort of educational disability in speech or language. And as we know, that's so closely tied to learning and academics. And so all that we do is to support academic performance and to support um, skills in every area, everything from reading to math and social studies and all of those types of academics. As a point of clarity, can you help make the distinction between speech and language? Absolutely. Great question. And that's something that a lot of people don't realize. And so um, I'll just define it pretty quickly is speech is actually the sounds that we make, um, you know, for our particular language. So anything um, that's sound based, uh, it could be errors in production or it could be um, actual um, distortions. And so it's the, the way a child is producing the actual sounds. Where language is a little more complex. It's everything um, that a person might say. So, or understand. So receptive language would be the understanding of what other people produce. And then expressive language is the ability to construct and actually say uh, what they want to, to communicate to other people. You have me thinking about uh, parents who watch their young children talk to a stranger or neighbor and, and you, you watch the parents and they're hoping that that other adult understands what their child is saying. <laughs> And yeah. sometimes they provide a more clear translation or sometimes you see the parents excited when the, that friend or neighbor can understand. But is that sort of that difference between language and speech? Absolutely. So we have many children who might, you know, language-wise be perfectly able to 
think about what they want to say and put it into words yes. or understand what other people are saying. And so that's not the issue necessarily, but it's the actual speech sound production and whether or not they have what's called intelligibility of speech. And so that just means could, can other people understand them? So if there's difficulty with speech, what is the impact on language learning? What happens in the classroom when we have students who are struggling? Yeah, so students who are struggling, whether it be in speech or language, that's definitely going to impact academic performance in some way. And that's how students qualify for services is because it's affecting their academics in some way. Um, and so it could be everything from being able to clearly and concisely um, communicate their ideas or even more fundamentally their wants and their needs and to be able to advocate for themselves in the classroom. Um, it's, it's highly nuanced. It can be anything from the actual words that they're saying to more complex skills like advocating for themselves and knowing when to say, hey, I need some help over here. Um, being able to put all of that into words that's all part of speech and language. Can you help me with some terms like articulation and phonology? What is that about? Mm -hmm. I, I've been a, a, a world language teacher, so I know these words in that language acquisition mm -hmm. context, but I don't want to make any assumptions. Sure, I'm happy to clarify that. So articulation and phonology have to do with the speech sound production. And so whether or not they can say the sounds. Articulation is the ability to physically and motorically produce a given sound correctly and to be able to do that at the sound level, word level, connected speech level. Whereas phonology is more about the rules for how we combine sounds. So, you know, whether or not we have a final consonant on the end of the word or whether or not a, a consonant cluster um, all of those sounds are produced in the right way. So it's not necessarily, uh, you might have a child who can motorically produce an S sound um, and they don't have any difficulty with that, but when it's in a consonant cluster, they typically might delete um, that S sound off of the cluster because it's more about where it occurs in the word and, and how it occurs. That's great. I'm also imagining those moments where um, your two front teeth have fallen out and a sound that you used to be able to make is temporarily unavailable. <laughs> yes, that's so true. In fact, I've um, worked with some students who had goals for, you know, particular sounds and we just have to kind of modify that therapy and, and give teachers some little pointers about how to um, move forward until those teeth come in. But yeah, about six, seven years old, that gets to be really fun and very cute. Makes me smile. Tell me a little bit about some of the common language needs. And I'm, I'm asking that question, wanting to help classroom teachers and mm -hmm. other adults in the school building. I I'd like to help them know what to listen for and how to make a referral. Sure. So there are different areas of language, and many educators know this already, but um, there's everything, you know, the, the phonology is part of language as well, those rules for how we combine sounds, but it's also morphology, you know, those individual units of sound uh, and how we can build them into longer words. And there's also what we call semantics, which is the meaning of words. 
So those vocabulary um, skills. And then there's syntax, which you can think of as more like the grammar of a sentence or a, an utterance. And so how do we combine words to uh, appear to be correct in a, a sentence? And then there's something that uh, we often forget about, and that's the pragmatics. And that's also part of language. And it's really about the social rules for communication um, in, um, you know, between people or in a given setting. Uh, and that's a big one in the classroom because we might have children who are highly skilled with vocabulary and even syntax and how we can put words together. But there's this what we call unwritten curriculum of the social rules for how we connect with other people. And that's where a lot of our children struggle. And as they age and those social expectations increase, it becomes more obvious that that's an area of need. When you make yourself available for workshops or professional development or trainings and presentations, what kinds of things are people looking for in the schools? Well, a lot of people are looking for um, ways to partner with speech language pathologists. They're looking for ideas that they can take and implement in the classroom that will help support the communication needs of a student. Um, and also just things that they can um, make part of their teaching if they haven't already um, to, to really be inclusive and proactive about supporting children from the get-go. And so that's that's become more common, I think, over the years, but um, teachers are amazing in their ability to um, continually learn and implement and just hone their craft a little bit. How often do you get asked to stretch into areas that may not quite be appropriate, like uh, working with students who have dialectal or language differences? Yeah, so that is um, kind of a hot topic recently, mm -hmm. uh, but it's been around for a long time about, you, you know, you want to refer the children who have needs and you want to refer them, refer them appropriately, uh, but there are times when we would say it's not an appropriate referral. So I've had teachers that will um, refer students to me saying, oh, you know, they're leaving off parts of their words and they're pronouncing things like maybe they live in Boston or something, even though we live in Southeast Virginia. And so as a speech pathologist, I would go and spend a little time and listen, you know, observe in the classroom and listen. And um, I, I would have a conversation with the teacher saying, well, this is, um, you know, something that's definitely noticeable and I understand why you submitted this referral, but... Um, it's not something that we actually correct for. We wouldn't want to change anything that's part of a student's individual culture or their linguistic environment. Um, so we have children from diverse backgrounds in our classrooms all over. And uh, for us to say, well, you're not talking the way I would expect you to talk. And so we need to fix that when it's not actually an error it is not in our scope of practice. Um, and so we would never want to correct something that's really just part of a student's culture. Lisa, I'm imagining how fun it would be to watch my fair lady with you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely a fave. I love that. I love that movie. When you're out at the schools, how do you offer specific strategies? Can you give us a couple of examples? Maybe we can learn a few right sure, here. Sure, sure. Strategies. Um, 
The biggest strategy I think for the classroom setting is to provide lots and lots of modeling and teachers are innately very skilled at this, providing lots of language models, uh, providing lots of ways to, you know, put what children know into words. Um, research tells us that's the very best way for children to learn, whether it's a, a child learning to talk for the first time and learning language and learning to put words together, or whether it's someone that just needs a little bit of modeling in terms of correct grammar or correct uh, pronunciation. Um, modeling is one of the very best ways. Um, Can you tell more about modeling? How do, uh, yeah. what does good modeling look like? Yeah, so I, as a SLP, I tend to forget uh, modeling is such like a key word for our field. I forget that other people might not realize what modeling is. Modeling is simply you as the educator or the professional giving students an example. So for a child who's just learning um, to speak, I might model um, things that, you know, we let's build our communication about, let's talk about things that we see, like, oh, I see uh, a bear, that's a, a brown bear. And so you're giving them words that they could use. And when we model, we don't want to say, we don't want to tell children to say, say this. We want to just provide what they would say themselves. So like, I see a brown bear. Uh, and then for older students, that could look very much the same for if they're working on uh, vocabulary or for, you know, using that vocabulary in a connected speech utterance, you would just model what the students would say or could say themselves. I love hearing different examples across age bands because mm -hmm. certainly um, age is one measure, but we we do have students at any age with a wide range of, of skills and strengths and modeling for them is important at all ages and levels. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that because we, we do have children who are learning to talk who are, you know, in the middle and high school years. And so um, that that's a very good point. And what about recasting? Yeah, so recasting is, you know, when you hear a student produce something, we don't ever want to just leave it at, you know, that's what they did. So for instance, if you have a child who's working on increasing their utterance length, and maybe they're like at the two to three word phrase, and so they're saying, they're talking about what they see. Let's use that brown bear example again. So I see a brown bear, and so they might say that, the student might then say, brown bear. You wouldn't want to just leave it at that because that seems like a little bit of a lost opportunity to then expand and extend what they do. So then you can then um, expand it into a longer utterance. Like, yes, brown bear, that is a brown bear. Uh, the brown bear is jumping or the brown bear is running. And then you would want to extend it even further and use a different type of utterance like, um, you know, not just talking about what you see, but reflecting your own opinion. Like, I love brown bears. I saw a brown bear at the zoo, or, you know, just bringing in a different type of utterance. And so you've taken one little opportunity and then you've given them lots of different models for how to put a, a phrase or a sentence together. And again, you could do that at, no matter what the student is working on, what their goals are. Um, you know, it might be you're incorporating scientific vocabulary into um, 
you know, the discussion of the experiment you're running in the classroom. Um, and so uh, you could use these same principles, like you model, expand, and extend. Let's talk about more strategies. What else might you offer to this education community? Strategies that support speech language in the classroom. So one thing I always recommend is to be really um, cognizant of the way you are prompting a student. So back when I first started my career, the big buzzword was errorless learning. And I used that for a large part of my career where you want to support students in being successful. And so you give them the most amount of support so that they can be successful. And then you start to back off on the level of support as they gain more proficiency. Hmm. However, there's been research about that um, over the past decade or so. And what we now know is that uh, that is not a, a good way to prompt students because they can become very prompt dependent. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, if you're an educator, you've probably met someone who was prompt dependent at some point. Um, and it's really hard to break out of that. And so what we know now is that the least to most prompting is what um, is recommended. And the research shows that children make more progress that way. So you want to give them the opportunity. um, And here's another buzzword, wait time. You want to give them lots and lots of wait time before you jump in with a prompt. And when you do jump in with a prompt, because you waited and you can see that they need a little support, you want to prompt them with the least amount of prompt. So you start with maybe just an expectant pause and look, and you're looking at them, maybe then maybe just a gesture or, you know, and and only then when they're not um, successful with that, would you jump to the next level and so forth. And so you help a child move forward because you're only giving them the exact support that they really need. And it's hard to do if you've ever had to wait um, you know, that extended wait time is almost painful for us as educators who love to jump in and support and prompt. Well, we're told about uh, that our classrooms need to be productive and, and silence can be hard mm-hmm. when you have an expectation that productivity looks or sounds a certain way. I'm mm-hmm. also thinking about siblings that make it possible for another sibling to remain quiet and uh, maybe they speak up before a think time takes place for yes. in the family. Lisa, let's imagine it's a fresh semester. I'm designing my classroom. Mm-hmm. What would you like to see in my classroom that would help my learners uh, have some visual support? Yeah, visuals are amazing. And, and educators are so great about, you know, you walk into most educators' classrooms and there are so many visual supports, mm-hmm. everything from anchor charts to, um, you know, vocabulary, word walls, and so forth. Um, And those are so helpful. Um, There are also visual supports that can um, set a student up for success. So maybe a student um, is able to follow along with whole group instruction, but then when they're left to do more independent work at their seat, that's where they start to break down a little bit. And so just something as simple as a little process chart on their desk. for instance, you know, when my daughter was learning uh, math in elementary school, she was learning that doubles plus one strategy. I think they might still use that. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's kind of a step-by-step thing. Like you make, you, you double the number and you add one if, if they're 
Like if you're doing eight plus nine, you, anyway. Um, something as simple as a doubles plus one process chart, um, just giving a student the steps. And what that does is it increases their independence uh, and they don't necessarily need that whole group instruction again, but they can independently do that seat work. Um, there's also visuals for just the way you can organize a classroom to help a student be more independent in, in the room. Um, if there can be, you know, boundaries set up with visuals. There can be um, materials organized with visuals. And um, I've seen that work really well for students that, um, you know, might have additional adult support, but you don't necessarily want the adult to have to tell them to do everything. Um, and so having a visual in the room, um, maybe as they're unpacking their backpack or something, that can really set a student up for independence. Um, there, there's, you know, so many different kinds of visuals that you could use to support students depending on their needs. I hear your student-centered thinking and I'm grateful for it. It's no wonder <laughs> the, um, the American Speech Language Hearing Association gave you an ACE award for your mm -hmm. efforts in continuing education. And I hear that partnership with educators in this conversation that we've been able to share. Lisa, thank you for being my guest. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. To fellow educators, thank you all for listening. If you'd like to explore the topics that Lisa Geary and I have discussed today, check out the show notes at teachingchannel.com slash podcast. You may even find a helpful downloadable right there. Be sure to subscribe on whatever listening app you use. It will help others to find us. I'll see you again soon for the next episode. Thanks for listening.